the Oakdale Christian Centre podcast. In this episode, we hear from Joseph Hubbard from Creation Research UK. And uh, we have a new logo for Creation Research as well. Uh, so that's very nice, but the website is the same. And tonight we're going to dive through history. And we're going to sort of look at a bit about the history of geology. But we're really going to try and ask ourselves the question, where did the idea of millions of years come from? Uh, in geological terms, we call it deep time. Where did the idea of deep time come from? Uh, is it connected to history? Or is it a new and scientific idea? So we're going to run through history, look at fossils and all sorts along the way. As it has been uh, four years since I was last here, brief little bit about creation research and what we're doing nowadays. Um, my background is in geology, but here I am enrolled uh, in, a, in a doctorate program in electrical engineering. I'm not an electrical engineer, but we're using the techniques developed by electrical engineers to do all sorts of weird and wonderful things with dinosaur bones. We are going into dinosaur bones and seeing if there's anything that's soft and squidgy left inside, and the results of that are fascinating. So if you want to know more about what we're doing there, uh, you can ask in the Q&A session that we'll have at the end of this. Um, since I was last with you, uh, I did get married in 2020 in the height of COVID, and uh, Sarah Ann, who's here with us today, now travels around with me and helps me out with the fossils and carrying stuff off the beach and all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, a reminder of the website, creationresearchuk.com is our UK ministry website, creationresearch.net is still the main site, and uh, you'll find a whole host of resources on there, including the Q&A site and uh, the fact file, and so if you don't get a chance to ask a question tonight, or you're too afraid to do so, you can go to creationresearch.net and find out the details there. One of the things that COVID did do, we were just talking about this uh, before, is it sort of opened up a whole new online world to churches and ministries, which we didn't really know existed before. And one of the things that we started in the middle of COVID, which we're carrying on to this day, is a live broadcast every single evening, uh, sorry, every single week on a Friday uh, called Creation Conversations. It features myself, and uh, you'll see John up there as well, uh, as a few other people. And this goes out every single Friday night, and we deal with a different topic every week. And it doesn't just deal with the you know, creation, evolution, millions of years. We also look into the history side and the archaeology side. We deal with highly controversial questions like, what is a woman? which you might not think is a highly controversial question, but in these days it really is. We actually have a medical biologist on the team uh, who not only identifies as a woman, she actually is one, and so she got to answer the question from both a scientific and a biblical point of view. So you'll find all this kind of content very useful. It's up there on our YouTube and Facebook pages, as well as, as uh, podcasts as well. And most recently, we set up a 24-7 broadcast that goes out around the clock. Everything creation research, you can pull it up on your smart TV or on your laptop or your phone or whatever. It's all up on there and you can see it's up there for sure. 
The biggest thing that we've done since we were last here four years ago is our museums project. Uh, you'll remember that John used to carry fossils around with him, and I know that Dave will remember we were going down digging up fossils whenever we came over here, and John's been doing that for the last sort of 35 years or so that he's been coming over. I've been doing it a fair bit as well, and we've ended up with over 30,000 fossils and artefacts from all over the world, which include natural history and geology and archaeology and all sorts, and you'll see I've got a very small selection of it here today. Uh, so we started the museums project, which is the idea of having a network of museums all around the, yeah, the country. Our main one is currently based in Oswestry, which is on the border of England and Wales, slightly further north from here. So you can come and see fabulous fossils, fabulous artifacts, get a tour around, meet the dinosaurs and see fossils like this fabulous Jurassic fossil squid. Now we put the word Jurassic up there and a lot of people think of millions of years in evolution. But as I'm sure that John has shared with you many times here before, the word Jurassic simply means named after the rocks in the Jura Mountains. Uh, so it's got nothing to do with millions of years at all, but everything to do with where the rocks were first studied. And it was Alexander von Humboldt, who was the king's geographer in Germany, who travelled the world and recognised these rocks in the UK, these rocks in the States, they look very similar to the rocks back home at the base of the Jura Mountains. So I'll call them the Jurassic rocks, the rocks like the ones in the Jura Mountains. And even without the label up there, you probably recognise that this was some kind of a fossil squid because, well, it looks like a modern one. Uh, but you shouldn't be too surprised because, you see, if you read the rocks as a history of time, then you would argue that this rock is around 155 million years old. Now, regardless of whether you believe those dates are true or not, and I don't, and we'll delve into why that is in tonight's session, but even if you do believe that these rocks are 155 to 159 million years old, all you've proven is that in 150 odd million years, squid have turned into squid. So they haven't evolved, but what they have done is display perfectly what God told them to do in the beginning when ten times in Genesis chapter 1 it says that God created living things to reproduce after their own kind. Now if God says something once, you should pay attention. If God says something ten times in one relatively short chapter, he's really trying to drive a point home. Um, case in point, we actually have this fossil down here, again from our museum collection, again, it's from those same German rocks, the Solnhofen, at the base of the Jura Mountains, uh, and you can see two fossils in it. You've got this deep sea creature on the uh, right hand side there, the ammonite, the curly whirly one, and then on the left hand side you've got a fossil plant. And it's so well preserved, we know what kind of plant it is. It belongs to the Oricaria, that's the, uh, the, the technical scientific name, or they're commonly known today as southern conifers. They're in the same family as the monkey puzzle tree, if you've heard that name. Well, today they all live in the southern hemisphere, um, hence the term southern conifer. Most of them come from uh, Australia and around there. A few come from South America, like the monkey puzzle tree. But the fact that you've got a deep sea creature and a uh, southern conifer plant, and yes, the southern conifer is a living fossil, when you find deep sea creatures and land plants buried together, you have very good evidence of a flood. Because a flood is water where water shouldn't be. If your kitchen floods, it's because the water is on the floor and not in the sink where it belongs. 
So if you find evidence of mixed environments, if you find evidence of deep sea creatures and land plants buried together, you have evidence that a flood has passed through the area. Hmm. Uh, and it's not just the, uh, the fossils that we have in the museums. If you like the archaeology and the history, these are some uh, brand new acquisitions since we've been here last. You can see me holding the big brick there, and you can see the sort of uh, funny scribbly writing along the top. Well, this big brick is actually from ancient Babylon. It was collected by the Leonard, uh, Reverend Leonard T. Pearson uh, back in the 1930s. There's the inscription along the top line. Underneath you have what's known as the transliteration. That just puts the Arcadian language into English words, uh, or English letters rather. And then you have the uh, translation by the British Museum. Yes, this was on display in the British Museum for a number of years uh, before Leonard Pearson took it back from them because it was rightfully his and uh, we ended up acquiring it from his estate. Uh, you can see what it says there in the translation. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who provides for Eskila and Isaida, the eldest son of Nabopolassar, king of Babylon, am I. So this is a reference to that biblical king Nebuchadnezzar, but you can go one step further because notice how it's written in what we would call the first person. It refers to Nebuchadnezzar as the one who is speaking this. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, am I? Now this is important because for years scribes would say and historians would say, um, there's no way that we can trust the Bible because, you see, in the book of Daniel, you have a, a reference to something called Nebuchadnezzar's prayer. And Nebuchadnezzar's prayer is written in the first person. It says, I, king of Babylon, I, Nebuchadnezzar. And the uh, historians would say, there's no scribe who would dare pen down the words, I am Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar was viewed as a god. And so you wouldn't have a scribe writing down the words, I am Nebuchadnezzar, therefore we can't trust the Bible. And you know, they're actually partially right, because no scribe would dare pen down the words, I am Nebuchadnezzar. However, we started finding bricks like this, that was written in the first person. And what we find is that these bricks were known as the ceremonial bricks, which would go on the four corners of a new building which was established, and you very quickly realise that these refer to the king in the first person, because it was the king himself who wrote it or stamped it. So, two part points. Number one, this brick was stamped by King Nebuchadnezzar, that's pretty cool. Uh, secondly, you can actually trust the Bible. When it records a factual and historic statement about something which actually happened. Or if Nebuchadnezzar is not your flavour of biblical kings, we also have this in the museum, some uh, pot handles, stamped with the royal seal of Hezekiah. And it actually records in the book of Chronicles how the Assyrian kings were coming to invade the kingdom of Judah and Hezekiah being the good king that he was, not only prayed to God, he was a wise king and he made preparations. And it says in the book of Chronicles that Hezekiah built for himself storehouses for the storage of jars filled with grain and wine and oil. And these are the remnants of those jars from the time of Hezekiah. So fascinating stuff that doesn't just bring the Bible to life in terms of history, but also shows that you can trust the Bible from the very beginning. And the real thing we're trying to get across is to let you know that all things were made by Jesus Christ. Because that's what the Bible teaches in both the Old and the New Testament, perhaps most explicitly in Colossians 1.16, where it says that not only were all things made by Jesus Christ, they were made for Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus Christ that everything is held together. 
So check out creationresearchcenter.com. That's our museum ministry. We're setting up a network of these museums around the country. You can support the museum ministry and also sign up to our UK newsletter. We've got some free copies of the newsletter over on the table there. Uh, help yourself to both the international one and the UK one. You can find out more about the museum project here and how you can support and you can sign up to the newsletter for free. All the details are over on the uh, table over there. Alright, our main topic tonight is actually a programme that we put together in preparation for a book that we are writing called Evolution and the Iniquity of Our Fathers. Uh, it's a reference to the fact that in Deuteronomy it talks about the sins of the fathers visiting the third and the fourth generations. In other words, once you have one generation that has fallen, it takes a lot of effort to get you back on track again. And really, only by the grace of God. But thinking about that as a concept, um, how far back can we see evolution as an idea? How far back can we see the idea of millions of years? But let's get a sort of overview of geology to begin with. There's the United Kingdom, you hopefully know where that is. Um, down on the south coast, we have something called the Jurassic Coast. Remember the word Jurassic means named after the Jura Mountains? These rocks match the ones in the Jura Mountains. And two years ago, in uh, 2022, just after we'd sort of finished fully opening up after COVID, we uh, had our first convention down there. Six days of seminars in the evening, we had Answers in Genesis come and speak with us, and every single day we went down on the beach to dig up fossils. It was a great time to go and dig up fossils and uh, really get to grips with the world that God has created. We were joined by Dr. Diane Eager, one of our medical biologists, and she found a fossil. Can you see the long brown thing that she's found next to her? Um, there it is slightly closer up, it's actually a piece of fossil wood. In fact, again, it's so well preserved that we actually know what type of fossil wood this is for, from, what type of tree it's from. It's, again, from one of those southern conifers, the Oricarias. And look what it's buried next to. Another one of those curly-whirly ammonites. Ah, land plant, deep sea creature buried together equals a flood. There's no doubt about it, these rocks are flood rocks. And we got to take people all over here. We got Diane teaching us about biology. And uh, here's young Susie, who uh, has also found a fossil. It's a similar one to that curly-whirly one, but it's slightly different. This is called a nautilus. And yes, it's a living fossil. We still have them alive today. Now, these rocks are supposed to be around 200 million years old, uh, about 199 million years old, and yet they haven't changed one bit. Neither have the giant trees that you find in the rocks on the Jurassic Coast either. Now, if we look at this rock, these are the Jurassic rocks, right? If we put it into the uh, standard geological column, which you can see on the left-hand side there, um, you know, you've got your oldest rocks down the bottom, right, the Cambrian, and then you build up and up and up and up, and you can see, look, there's the Jurassic in the blue in the middle there, uh, at around sort of uh, 145 to 200 million years. And then it goes up and up and up and up, and you see how the dates are getting younger until you get to the Quaternary and the Holocene, which is the rocks that are supposed to be forming today. 
You see, the standard geological model teaches that the rocks go backwards in time and that the bottom rocks are the oldest rocks, the higher rocks are the youngest rocks. And this is presented in books, this is presented in museums, this is presented around the world. So a question, is this model actually reliable? Um, it's interesting because Professor Derek Ager, who's actually uh, probably one of your most famous geologists from the University of Swansea, uh, he was a, a world famous geologist who actually travelled the world, and I'm sure John has mentioned him before when he's been here, but Professor Derek Ager said this, he wasn't a Christian, he wasn't a creationist, but he recognised some of the major flaws with the idea of evolution. This is what he said in his book, The New Catastrophism. He said, nowhere in the world is the record, that's that geological record, or even part of it anywhere near complete. Even in the Grand Canyon of the Colorado River and the adjacent sections along the Little Colorado River, surely the finest record of geological history anywhere on Earth, there are huge breaks. And it really is true. If you go to the Grand Canyon, which is supposed to be the greatest example of the geological column, over 90% of the supposed time is missing. It just simply isn't there recorded in the rocks. So can this geological column actually be an accurate representation of life on Earth, of the history of Earth? Well, here's a better question to ask. Where did this model come from in the first place? Who actually invented this model? How was it developed and was it actually developed with a global flood in mind as described in the Bible? Well, here's a popular belief that is out there today. It's popular to believe that the idea of a very old Earth is a modern and scientific idea. Um, the reality is, as uh, the National Academy of Science stated a few years ago, scientists knew that the Earth was old before they knew how old. I'm sorry, but that's a nonsense statement. You can't know how old something is, or whether it is or isn't old, until you've actually got empirical evidence for it. But what we'll see as we dig in a little bit deeper is the idea of a very old Earth is a very old idea indeed. Well, we're in a church, so let's do some Bible verses. Uh, it's a good place to start. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. It goes on to say, is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already. Long ago it was here before our time. And then perhaps most poignantly, no one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. It is very worthwhile paying attention to history. It's very worthwhile having a look at what people believed in the past. Because we like to tend to think of ourselves as the greatest people that ever existed. Uh, when the reality is, nothing is new under the sun, and certainly the idea of millions of years is a very, very old idea indeed. In fact, even the Apostle Peter warns us in 2 Peter chapter 3, there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. 
In other words, Peter is warning us that there are going to come scoffers uh, that are going to deny two key points about Earth's history. The first one is the creation that God created. The second one is a global flood that God judged. And this has very important implications for the world that we live in today. So fossil and geology history, yes, it does go back further than you think. And the key phrase that you will see Peter warning us about, and the key phrase that you will see over and over again as we delve into history, is the present is the key to the past. The idea that how we understand the past is by understanding the present and not the other way round. So we're going to start with the ancient Sumerians, the ancient Babylonians, and the ancient Hindus. What do they have to do with evolution? Well, it's interesting, actually. If you go to the ancient Sumerians, these were a major civilization around the time of Abraham. They built and founded the city of Ur. That's mentioned in the Bible in Genesis chapter 12, because it's out of Ur. God actually called Abraham, or Abram, as he was known back then. It's uh, centered in and around the Middle East. It's sort of the precursor to Babylon. It's one of the first major civilizations that would have sprung up after the Tower of Babel. And in the British Museum in London, you can actually go and see an artifact known as the Sumerian King List. And what's fascinating is that the Sumerians believed that this King List was real history. They believed that this was their history. And what's fascinating is this Sumerian King List can be correlated almost perfectly with the Bible. The idea that there was a global flood at some point in history, and the idea that before the global flood, there were eight pre-flood kings or patriarchs, just like there's eight pre-flood patriarchs in the book of Genesis. And uh, the major difference is that while in the scriptures you have records of Adam, for instance, living to 930, Methuselah living to 939, um, the Sumerian king list exaggerates the ages of the kings to have reigned for tens of thousands of years. In fact, they argued uh, in the Sumerian king list that between creation and the flood, there was 241,200 years. Now, the Bible, if you count up the genealogies, says there was about 1,400 years to 1,600 years between creation and the flood. Um, a great difference of time compared to the Sumerian king list. But it's important to, to point out that texts such as the Sumerian king list, you have other examples from history like the Epic of Gilgamesh, what they show is that accounts of creation and, uh, and a global flood were accepted as real historical events by these people. There are multiple independent parallels which do not come from the same sources at all, uh, as in they weren't sharing information at the time, which all claim uh, of a supernatural creation and all claim about a global flood. But you can see as time progresses how these begin to get corrupted. And we'll look at that now, because going on from the Sumerians, you have the Babylonians. <coughs> Uh, also known as the Chaldeans, you can read about them in Daniel chapter 1. Uh, it was Nebuchadnezzar who came and uh, defeated the kingdom of Judah and carried them away into captivity. Uh, and Jeremiah actually says that this was God's plan all along, that God had raised up the Babylonians to actually bring judgment on the kingdom of Judah. They were the descendants of the Sumerians. They were descendants of the old Babylonian Empire, which would have happened at the time of uh, Moses. You may have heard of names like Hammurabi and the like. 
And the great thing is, is that the Babylonians kept very detailed records because they overtook another empire called the Assyrian Empire. And in the Assyrian Empire, and this is fascinating, right? These are ancient cultures, the ancient Assyrians. And in the ancient Assyrians, they had a library. And in the library, just like modern libraries, there were different sections to their library. And in this ancient Assyrian library, there was a section on ancient history about where they'd come from and about their history. And uh, they have these fascinating records that we can read through today and see what they believed at the time. And uh, the Babylonians had uh, a guy called Berossus, the Chaldean. He was a Hellenistic, that sort of early Greek time, uh, Babylonian. He was the chief priest of their main god, Baal Marduk. Now, Baal Marduk is a, a fascinating god to look into because you can actually trace Baal Marduk back as well. And you can also trace him back to early symbolism of the crescent moon and the morning star between the chief god and the chief goddess. And, that's a fascinating uh, uh, piece of history which we don't have time to go into, but by all means ask me afterwards because the correlation between Baal uh, and some other gods is amazing, particularly with today's world. But Barosus the Chaldean controlled the main Babylonian archives. He looked after the history libraries. And he wanted to make sure this is the height of the pride of Babylon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar believed that he was the greatest king and the greatest god to have ever existed. Uh, he had to be humbled, by the way, and <laughs> the god of the Bible certainly did that. But Barosus the Chaldean was determined to make sure that the Babylonians were the most ancient and oldest of all civilizations, and therefore the most important. So he wrote a book called Babylonica which was the history of Babylon, the history of Babylonia. And Morosus claimed that there had been an additional 1,680,000 years prior to the Sumerian king list. And then he argued you had this um, um, basically one and a half million years before, then you had the Sumerian king list, then you had the time of the flood to Alexander the Great of 36,000 years. He predicted there would be a further 12,000 years of history, which brings the total cosmos history to 2,160,000 years. Now, if there are any mathematicians in the audience, you'll know that 2,160,000 is a multiple of 60, because the ancient Babylonians worked on what's known as a sexagesimal system a system which was multiples of 60. That's where we get our 60 seconds in a minute from. That's where we get our 60 minutes in an hour. It's actually a Babylonian idea. And they believed that part of their religion, part of their worldview, part of the way that they understood the world was through the light of this sexagesimal system, this multiple of 60 system. So you have already got, several thousand years ago, the idea of millions of years a total cosmos of 2,160,000 years. This is a long time before dating methods, like radiometric dating and potassium argon dating and so on and so forth. This is a long time before Charles Darwin. This is a long time before the idea of evolution. And yet we still have this idea of millions of years. Now, the Babylonians influenced another area, and they were the Hindus. And the, the Hindus developed predominantly out of the Indus Valley in India, one of the, again, one of those ancient civilizations. Uh, and they had this reincarnation philosophy, this sort of bleak view where your spirit or your soul remains the same, but you can come back as a prince or a cow or a rat or off and off you go. 
And uh, Hindu cosmology, particularly, was greatly influenced by this Middle Eastern pagan philosophy that was promoted by the Babylonians. Uh, and you can see connections of this as well, because uh, you have people like Alexander the Great, who was a Greek who invaded India. You have the Babylonians who invaded the area of India. And you can see correlations, for instance, the god Baal, who was uh, he, one of his, his symbols or his forms was that of a cow. Uh, and you'll notice that cows are sacred in India today. You can find Greek gods carved into the temples of uh, Hindus. You can find depictions of Babylonian uh, gods and symbols carved into Hindu temples as well. There's a crossover here. And the Hindus adopted this sort of pagan sexagesimal system, this idea of multiples of 16, but they extended the history for millions of years to billions of years. They incorporated this regeneration, this reincarnation philosophy, this idea that the present is the key to the past, whatever has been happening now has always happened. But they argued that their cosmos was represented by the god Brahma, um, which uh, lived for 311,040 billion years. So over three trillion years. This is billions of years long before Darwin or any modern scientific thinking. Then we come to the ancient Greeks. See, we're going down through history now. And the ancient Greeks had major influence on the way that we think today, but they themselves were heavily influenced by Middle Eastern pagan philosophy. Uh, we know this because of the example Aphrodite, who would become Venus, was just the same version of the uh, Babylonian god Ishtar. There's all these links, you see. And Alexander the Great himself was influenced by India and the Hindu ideas, and they influenced him and he influenced them. There's a crossover again. So affected by both Babylonian and Hindu philosophy, they began to reject a theological system. So you know the Greeks had many, many gods? Well, they began to reject this idea, and certain sects of the Greeks began to adopt a purely naturalistic philosophy. One that can only be explained by things that they observed that day. They believed in an early primordial soup philosophy. The idea that they had evolved out of the slime. They argued an idea of natural selection, which they said arising from these creatures would come these hopeful creatures. And the hopeful creatures would be able to go on and have more children than the non-hopeful creatures. And so they would be able to survive more a philosophy which is very similar to our modern-day understanding of natural selection. And it was a very racist view of evolution as well, because they believed that they'd crawled out of the slime, but they believed that they'd evolved out of better quality slime than the Jews had. Um, it's all in their writings. It's amazing stuff. Of course, what's going on with the church at this time? Because now we're sort of getting to, uh, you know, just past the time of Jesus into the early church. Well, the early church had this to say. Theophilus of Antioch. Creation occurred between 5529 BC given minus 200 years. Not the tens of thousands as Plato has written. So even the early church recognised that according to the Bible, the earth is not millions of years old. Despite the fact that at the time, there were lots of people arguing that it was hundreds of thousands or even millions of years old. Uh, another church father says uh, Plato followed the Chaldeans. So even back then they recognised that the Greeks weren't the ones who thought of the idea. It goes back to the Babylonians. 
Um, but they know that uh, they're argued 470,000 years. But we know, he says from the Holy Scriptures, um, that uh, the world is not yet 6,000 years old. So therefore, he says that the philosophers who enumerate thousands of ages from the beginning of the world know that the 6,000 year is not yet complete. In fact, even Augustine said that the world is uh, not yet 6,000 years old at all. This is the early church going against the major philosophies of their day and hey, it doesn't sound too different to some of the things we have to do in this day and age. But then we shouldn't be surprised because there's nothing new under the sun. Alright, well where do we go to next? Because uh, we still haven't quite got to our Charles Darwin point yet. Well, introducing a chap called Steno, Nicholas Steno. Nicholas Steno was actually a Christian and a creationist. He ended up uh, serving in the church. He was a believer in Genesis and Noah's flood, and he's also known by the scientific world as the founder of paleontology, that's the study of fossils, and stratigraphy, that's the study of rock layers. And this was his major work. Um, we actually have some shark teeth here with us tonight. Uh, we have our modern day shark tooth here, and we have our fossil shark tooth. Now you might notice there's a bit of a size difference. Now, uh, this is actually from a, a, a mackerel shark. This is from a, a megalodon. But what's interesting about a megalodon is that it's almost identical to uh, a modern-day great white shark tooth, with one exception, it's a lot, lot bigger. Uh, in fact, it even shares the same name as the great white shark. Both of them have the genus name Carcharodon. Um, but Nicholas Stilo knew about these things because the ancient Greeks knew about these. But the ancient Greeks started off with a theological philosophy, the idea of many, many gods, right? And uh, they believed that their gods were just like us, but bigger. So if we could create something, the gods could create bigger things. And if we could get angry, the gods could get really angry. And if we could play tricks, they believed the gods could play even bigger tricks. So when the ancient Greeks dug up these shark teeth, they said, well, good try, Zeus, but we know that sharks live in the water. They don't live in the rocks. And so we know that these must be tricks played on us by the gods. That's what they believe because of their worldview, because of the way that they viewed the world. Okay, skip forward a few years and you'll find during the Middle Ages, these were also believed to be tricks played on us. Not by the Greek gods at this point, but by the devil. Uh, you'll find writings that claim that these are just tricks played on us by Satan in order to get us to uh, you know, re reject uh, God's word. Then along comes Nicholas Steno. Nicholas Steno is a Christian. He believes in the God of the Bible. He believes in Noah's flood and creation. And he said this. If a solid substance is in every way other like another solid substance, not only as regards to the conditions of surface, but also the regards to the inner arrangement of parts and particles, it will be like it as regards to the manner and place of production. Now, that is a load of scientific basically, um, but it's really, we have to do that sometimes in science, but if you want that broken down into simple language, what Nicholas Steno is saying is, if it looks like a shark's tooth on both the outside and the inside, it is a shark's tooth, right? It's the old, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and swims like a duck, then it probably is a duck. And so Nicholas Steno argued that, yes, we can know that these are shark teeth because they are identical to modern-day shark teeth, both on the inside and the outside. So it looks like a shark's tooth, therefore it is a shark's tooth. Now, where did Nicolasino come to this radical conclusion? 
Well, he was a believer in the Bible. He was a believer in the book of Genesis. He was also a believer in the book of Romans, where it says that God has stamped his nature onto creation so that men are without excuse, so we can trust the world that God has created. Well, now you've accepted that this is a shark's tooth, now you can ask the very legitimate question, sharks live in the water, how did he get in the rocks? And they have opened up a brand new branch of science called paleontology. So how did this shark tooth get in the rocks? Well, here was Nicholas Dino's answer. He argued that it had happened during Noah's flood. And he said this, the bottom layer forms first and the strata is laid down bottom to top. He says you have Noah's flood coming and one layer gets laid down, then another layer, then another layer. So the bottom layer is the oldest, the, or the bottom layer got laid down first, the top layer got laid down last. Now, if Steno's principle is right, ask yourself this question. If the oldest rocks are at the bottom and the youngest rocks are at the top, which fossil got buried first? Was it fossil A or was it fossil B? Well, if Nicholas Steno is right, it was fossil B that got buried first, because that's the one that's lower down. And fossil A got buried last. Now, this is what's known as the principle of superposition. The bottom layer got there first. Excuse me, the top layer got there last. But there are problems with this. Because look at the way that history goes. Because by the time you get past Dino to the uh, French revolutionary thinkers, um, the French Revolution was effectively trying to get rid of the monarch, trying to get rid of the uh, aristocracy, particularly the monarchy. But the problem was this is high Catholic France. So if you question the monarch, you're really questioning God, because you believe that God has appointed kings and queens to rule over you. So what was the revolutionary thinker's solution? Easy, we get rid of God. If we get rid of God, then there's no God-appointed monarchy, therefore you can go and chop the king's head off, happy days. Um, and so in order to argue for no God, they borrowed from the ancient Greeks. And you'll find writers like Di Malay, Buffon, Voltaire, they all argued for things like fossils are inorganic or fake, that they're not real, hey, just like the Greeks believed. And they argued that a flood such as Noah's flood would be impossible. They argued that the earth was at least two billion years old, and they borrowed that old Greek idea of life arising naturally. Now, the English and the French don't particularly get on. Uh, the English and the Scots don't necessarily get on. So you'll actually find that the first of these ideas filtered down into England from the Scots because the Scots paid close attention to the French. And uh, James Hutton, who was a, a Scottish farmer, really introduced uh, the rest of the United Kingdom into this idea of uniformitarianism. Big long word, but summed up in that phrase, the present is the key to the past. That everything is uniform. That we understand the world today based on what happens. We understand the world from the past based on what happens today. But note well, not once in this point have we had any observations um, based on science or anything that we can see. It's all started as a rejection of biblical authority based on a pagan philosophy. They wanted to get rid of God. Get rid of God by borrowing a pagan philosophy. Move forward in history and you find that writers and scientists such as Ray and Book, who doubted Genesis and the Flood, heavily influenced by the French revolutionary thinkers and by the earlier Greek thinking, they argued this. Well, if Steno is right and the bottom layer got there first and the top layer got there right uh, last, 
then uh, the world is simply too old for the Bible to be true. Moving forward with our story, you end up with Charles Lyell, who strongly promoted uniformitarianism. His aim was to remove God from people's thinking. He stated that plainly. And he argued this. Well, if the bottom layer got there first, then the bottom animals must be the oldest animals in the world. And if it took millions of years to build up these rock layers, then the rock layers must be a history of life on Earth over millions of years, which is different from what the Bible teaches. Do you see how this is now progressing? Because then in walks Charles Darwin, who was uh, Charles Lyell's most faithful disciple, and uh, he argued this. Well, if that's right, then the top creatures must have evolved from the lowest ones over millions of years. Therefore, the Bible is completely false. You see, Charles Lyell is an interesting character. I mean, he, there's his uh, picture in the British Museum, um, and his argument was this. Again, the present is the key to the past. Lyell and Darwin worked together, uh, and uh, effectively Lyell destroyed uh, the history of the Bible, and uh, Darwin simply rewrote it. And we have records of them going to places like this, in Canada, in the rocks that we now call the Ordovician. And you can come with us on a field trip there one day perhaps, and you'll see the fossils we find. Um, fossil snails. Lots of different types of fossil snails. And Charles Lyell asked Charles Darwin, according to your idea of evolution, how long do you think it would take for one type of snail to evolve into a different type of snail? And plucked out thin air, Darwin said, each species of snail would have taken about 20 million years to evolve to the next species. So Lyell said, well, if that's true, then the Ordovician must be at least 240 million years old. And overnight, the world was 240 million years older. Now, what's interesting is that modern science rejects that date because modern science places the Ordovician at about 450 million years old. So uh, the world has just got older and older. But the key concepts that you can see as we begin to finish up, um, the key concepts that Charles Lyell promoted was evolution, anti-catastrophism, anti-Noah's flood, and the idea that you could tell the age of the rock simply by the fossils that are in it. But what was Charles Lyell's motives for ageing the earth? Well, his own words. I conceived the idea five or six years ago that if ever the mosaic geology, that's the idea of a global flood, geology based on the Bible, could be set down without giving offence, it would be in a historical sketch. In other words, it would be by rewriting history, by inventing a new story about the world. Um, Stephen Gold, famous uh, geo uh, geologist and paleontologist, said this about Charles Lyell. Charles Lyell was a lawyer by profession, and his books is one of the most brilliant briefs published by an advocate. He relied on true bits of culling to establish his uniformitarian views as the only true geology, and he did this by setting up a straw man to demolish. In fact, Gold says, uh, the catastrophists, that's the people who believe in the Noah's flood, were much more empirically minded than Lyell because the geological record really does seem to require a catastrophic process. What's the real problem? Well, the Bible says that the present is not the key to the past, but the past is the key to the present. What happened in the past explains why we're in the state we are today. What happened in the past explains why we need a saviour. What happened in the past explains the mess we're in today. So know very well any dating method, whether it's carbon-14 dating, starlight, radioactive dates, any of these, 
If any of these dating methods are based on Lyell's uniformitarian assumption, it will contradict the biblical account of a six-day creation and Noah's flood. Why? Because Charles Lyell, quote-unquote, my aim is to free science from Moses. Ah, there's the real motive. Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What do you find in there? The creation, the fall of mankind. You have the judgment of mankind in a global flood. You have the history of mankind in the Tower of Babel, and you have the law of God. Get rid of those five things, the rest of Christianity comes falling down. Why? Because if you get rid of a creation, no longer are we specially created, certainly not in the image of God, uh, and so really there's no need for a God because you can explain things naturally. If there's no fall of mankind, there's no origin of sin, there's no origin of death, therefore we don't need a saviour at all. If you get rid of God's judgment at the time of a global flood, then not only do you get rid of a vast amount of Earth's history recorded in the rocks, but you also get rid of a God who has the right to judge, who has judged, and has promised that he'll judge again. Therefore, you're not accountable to anyone. If you get rid of the history of man at the Tower of Babel, not only do you get rid of the answers as to things like why they're different skin colours and body shapes and so on and so forth, um, you end up with a very racist belief, as Charles Darwin himself promoted, which is if you have a different skin colour to me, you must be less evolved. Therefore, he argued that dark skin colours were less evolved than white skin colours. Uh, and if you get rid of the law of God, you have no basis for morality whatsoever. Charles Lyell knew exactly what he was doing, and he was trying to get rid of God out of people's thinking for sure. Um, the point, if you take a pagan-inspired philosophy that Lyell and Darwin promoted as your authority, you are going to have issues accepting the Bible's version of events. But realise that it's not an issue of evidence, it's an issue of who or what your authority is. And so to finish, I'd like to finish with a Bible verse, which really, if this is brand new to you, whether you've done this so many times with John, it's still vitally important. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, let this mind be in you that is also in Christ. If we're going to get answers about these, if you want to explore the world and get an understanding of the world God's way, then make sure you have the mind of Christ in you, because that's the only way we're going to ever be able to move forward. Well, a reminder of the uh, websites there, Creation Research UK and creationresearch.net, and we have a whole host of uh, resources over there, uh, including, whoops, including the uh, newsletter, so go and help yourself to that. Since we've last been here, we've got two particularly new resources, which you may find interesting. The first one is called The Dinosaur Project. This is the topic of my uh, doctorate, by the way. It's produced by Truth in Science, and uh, we go digging fossils together, but then we take you through the fascinating journey of how on earth can we have soft tissue inside bones that are supposed to be 200 plus million years old? Um, a whole interview with scientists and digging fossils and all sorts of fascinating stuff in there. And uh, also fire and ice. The topic of climate change, it's quite big at the moment. Well, we actually go to Iceland, we look at a real history of climate in Iceland. We look at a history of climate in the United Kingdom and in Australia as well. And we give you a biblical perspective in a three-part DVD uh, filmed on location. So it's not somebody standing up and giving a talk. It's actually filmed on location as we take you around the world. Well, I'll finish there. Thank you very much for listening and uh, maybe a chance for some questions. Oh, thank you very much.
hope you've enjoyed this episode. To find out more about our church, including our service times, visit www.oakdalechristiancentre.org. Thank you.